welcome to Inspired Island, where every episode we sit down with someone living an inspired life here on Vashon Island in Puget Sound. From world-class artists and musicians to chefs and business owners, our little rural island has it all. I'm your host, Grace McRae, a new full-time Vashon Island resident, and thank you for joining me on this journey to discover why Vashon is such an inspired island. And hello, everyone. Now, today's guest is somebody I've been hoping to get on the show from the very beginning. We are lucky enough to have Captain Joe Woobold in the studio. Welcome to Inspired Island, Captain Joe. Grace, hello to you, and I'm delighted to be here. Captain Joe is a retired captain from the U.S. Coast Guard, where he had a long and very distinguished career. He commanded six different ships, the last one an icebreaker, He served as Chief of Operations for the 13th Coast Guard District, which is basically the Pacific Northwest. His last assignment was Chief of Ice Operations, which gave him oversight over the Arctic, Antarctic, and the American Great Lakes. But Captain Joe certainly hasn't given up on adventures in his retirement. These days, he's a bit of a celebrity around here on Vashon Island, as Captain Joe is known as the guardian, the historian, and kind of the educator for our iconic Point Robinson Lighthouse. I first met Captain Joe during a 4th of July celebration a long time ago at Point Robinson, where he was giving tours of the lighthouse. And I've been really excited for a long time to learn more about his own personal history. So, Captain Joe, we love to go kind of way back here on Inspired Island and ground the conversation in your childhood. So where you grew up, where you come from, um, what your childhood was like. So I come originally from the Commonwealth of Virginia, and my grandfather was a country doctor in northern Virginia in Fairfax County when Fairfax was a rural county, as of course it is no longer. And my mother, whose nickname in the family was Toots, so whenever she, whenever she comes up in our conversation, she'll be referred to as Toots or Tootsie. <laughs> and uh, she would uh, every now and then remind me that uh, the family to which she belonged came to Virginia and Maryland in the 1600s, and therefore she was FFV. Have you ever heard the term FFV? No. So FFV means First Families of Virginia. Okay. And my mother would periodically remind me that uh, that we were FFV. But on my father's side, the name Wubold is a German name. And uh, my family, my German family, came over from Germany in the 1870s, not very long after the Franco-Prussian War. And they settled in, first of all, in uh, on the eastern shore of Maryland. So all of us who live in this country are immigrants. It just depends on how far back we go. In my mother's case, in Tootsie's case, it was a long, long way back. And in my father's case, uh, only a few generations. So uh, Northern Virginia and Maryland, my roots are very deep in that part of the country and also in the Chesapeake Bay country. Mm. I was uh, born in Alexandria, Virginia, just across the river from Washington, D.C., And my uh, grandfather was that country doctor to whom I referred, and his practice was in Fairfax, not very far from there. So not very far from Mount Vernon. So I was steeped in all of the customs and traditions and history of not only the Commonwealth, but also the rest of the American South. And in that area, there's a lot of military influence and sort of history and some of the iconic military colleges. Do you remember when you first got interested in the Coast Guard? I do. Um, I went to, when I went to high school, I went to uh, St. John's College High School, which when I was there was uh, in a very old building on Vermont Avenue, just uh, north of Thomas Circle. Mm. Uh, it was back when Washington, D.C. still had streetcars on the streets. It was long before your time living there, but not very far from where you lived because you had told me where you lived when you were working in Washington, and it was only a few blocks, a few squares away from there. And uh, at that time, uh, St. John's, uh, which was then and still is, 
uh, run by the uh, French Christian Brothers. So every school that has LaSalle in the name of it is is run by the uh, French Christian Brothers, and they ran and run St. John's. And at that time, it was both a mandatory military participation and it was all boys. So when I got to my junior year, and starting to look for what happens after graduation. Everyone who goes to high school comes to that point when they have to figure out what they're going to do next. And uh, I knew that my family would not be able to afford, this was before the days of generous school uh, student loan programs. And so I knew that the only way that I would be able to go to university was to get an appointment to some program that would pay for that. And so I applied for all of the ROTC programs, and I applied for all of the uh, service academy appointments. Some of them, of course, you need a congressional appointment for. But the Coast Guard Academy then and now is the only one of the service academies that is uh, offers appointments only by competitive examination. Mm. So I applied for all of them, and um, I received an appointment to the Coast Guard Academy. And I really didn't know that much about the Coast Guard, but what I did know was that if I could stick it out for the four years, that I would get a university degree, and that I would have to pay that back in four years of commissioned service. So I received the appointment, and... The first day that I went to the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut, and I went through the gate, I knew that I was in the right place for my life. And that's exactly the way that it turned out. And I've been a very fortunate person in that not only my way of earning a living, but so many other things in my life have turned out to be I was exactly where I was meant to be for that time in my life. And I am enormously grateful for that. That's beautiful. And what do you think about the Coast Guard you fit well with? The cadetship is a very um, intense training program. Mm. You go through the gate and you get start getting yelled at, but that's the case of every boot camp. That's the case of every... It goes back at least to Roman times that people who are just starting out in the military have to learn the idea that they are there as part of something that's greater than themselves. And for many people, this is a very difficult thing to accept and to acknowledge that there is something that is greater than I. So the first thing that uh, we learn that I heard, one of the first things that I heard at the Coast Guard Academy is an old is an old saying that goes back to rescue times uh, with the life-saving service and then the Coast Guard, and that is that you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Mm -hmm. And then for four years, I learned how to always come back. The question that you asked was, how did I uh, adapt and how did I feel about the the service that I came to serve and that came to love and still do today? And uh, that was that uh, the whole idea that there was something greater than yourself, I think that may have come from my grandfather, who really was a great servant to the people for whom he took care. So I've never felt that anything except the the obligations imposed by the oath that all of us take when we first be, come into the service. Mm. And what was the process like from when your first early days in the Coast Guard all the way to when you were commanding your first ship? So the four years at the academy are uh, uh, lead to a degree. Uh, at my in my time, there was only one degree that you could earn, and that was in in something called uh, nautical engineering. So I was uh, trained and educated as an engineer, but I was trained and educated also as a sailor, and I trained for four years in the Coast Guard's uh, Square Rigger Eagle. And at each one of the decision points, uh, when it was time for examinations and uh, a decision as to whether it was time to leave, that 
thought never entered my mind. They were not going to get me out no matter how hard it was and how wet and cold and all of the other things that go with seagoing. Uh, they were not going to get me out. So for the four years uh, that I was a cadet, I came to uh, really appreciate what the service was doing. And uh, at the end of it, I have to admit that uh, I was nowhere near the top of my class, but I wasn't the anchor man either. The anchor man is the the junior man on the class, the last one. And your class standing stays with you, stayed with me for the 34 years. Really? That I was uh, on active duty. So if I'd been more um, attentive to some of the ways that I could have improved my class standing, maybe it would have made some difference, but... Uh, I have no, uh, absolutely no regrets about any of it. It was just a great four years for me. And so when I was commissioned and I, um, I married the day after in my first marriage, I stayed at the academy for that summer to help with the training of the new class coming in. And then I went to my first ship, which was a cutter home ported in Honolulu mm. and, uh, that was how I started going to see, uh, going to see as a commissioned officer. Before that, I had quite a bit of sea time during the training at the academy. Okay, and did your would your family or your new wife at that time move with you during these various postings? Yes, she did, and uh, we uh, we moved out to uh, Hawaii, and I was uh, assigned to a ship that went out to the middle of the Pacific Ocean and sat there for three weeks as a weather reporting station, as a rescue station for aircraft flying over, headed from Honolulu in particular to Tokyo. That was where I experienced my first Pacific typhoon. That was where I almost got washed overboard in one of those typhoons. And uh, we would uh, occupy that station for three weeks and then go into Japan, be there for about 10 days, come back and occupy the station again, and then head back to Honolulu. So those deployments were about uh, three months long. Okay. It was not the most um, salubrious way to begin a marriage, and so it proved over the years. It turned out not to be a salubrious way to continue a marriage. That must have been tough. So uh, the at the end of that tour, which was two years long, then I was assigned to my first command. And that was where I began my command career, which uh, culminated uh, with the six Coast Guard cutters that I was the captain of. The captain is always called the captain regardless of what his rank is. So my, I was uh, an O2, second, the second level of uh, rank, officer's rank. But I was still the captain of this uh, small ship that was homeported in San Diego. And uh, that was where I began my command career. Wow. When did you um, find yourself in the Pacific Northwest? I came to the Pacific Northwest from the Great Lakes. I was the commander of Coast Guard forces for a big piece of the Great Lakes, most of Lake Superior, and a good piece of Lake Michigan, and a good piece of Lake Huron. And my headquarters was in Sault Ste. Marie, up in the Upper Peninsula. But at the end of my tour there, um, I was transferred to the Pacific Northwest, and that was uh, right after Mount St. Helens had uh, wow. blown up. And I was uh, asked on my transfer drive, my new boss uh, sent me a note, and he said, would I please make a stop at uh, George? Do you know where George Washington is? No, I don't think so. George Washington is uh, out in the uh, High Plains. I'm just trying to relate it to where you cross the Columbia River on Interstate uh, 90. And uh, it's not too far from where you cross the Columbia River at Vantage. And uh, the Coast Guard had a 1,350-foot a radar antenna tower at George for an electronic aids to navigation system called Loran, Loran C. And the transmitter and the tower were at, at George Washington. 
So I was asked to stop and inspect it and see whether there had been any damage as a result of Mount St. Helens. And I got there and I found that the filters to filter the air to cool the transmitter equipment were all clogged up with dust from Mount St. Helens. It had gotten that far, that far all the way out. So that was when I was transferred out here. And I became the chief of operations for all Coast Guard operations in the Pacific Northwest. And as you alluded to in your opening remarks, among all of the other duties that that encompassed, I also had oversight over all of the aids to navigation, all of the marine aids to navigation in the Pacific Northwest, which included uh, Point Robinson Lighthouse. And is that how you first came to know of Point Robinson? That's how I first came to know of Point Robinson, but I did not make any connection to the the what has come to me to be the magical isle of, of Bashan. Mm. It was, uh, I think that I had a, a car and driver drive me out here to take a look at it one day, but it really didn't make any impression, any real impression on me at that time. Did you take to the Pacific Northwest? Did you love it out here? Did you think you may want to live here permanently one day? I uh, I liked it a lot, but I also liked just about every other place where I'd been assigned. Mm. And um, my XOs, my second in commands, and I've had because I had the captain. I was the captain of six different ships plus the command that I had up in Sault Ste. Marie. I think I had about fourteen XOs or fourteen seconds in command. Uh, not because I went through them, <laughs> but uh, because the rotation was alternated, the captains and the XOs rotated at uh, alternate years. So uh, at every place that I was the uh, the commanding officer, uh, that was the place that I wanted to buy some property and to settle down. And so it was sort of a legend with my XOs that the old man wants to buy a piece of property here. And at one point, I wanted to buy pieces of property, and not in Northern Virginia. I never really wanted to go back there to live, but uh, wanted to buy property in the Pacific Northwest, up in Sault Ste. Marie. The, the weather, the winters in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan are usually brutal. So when I almost bought property there, that was in the summertime, and then I came to my senses in the winter, the next following winter. But I really liked the Northwest. And it, but it was only when I came here to live in my second marriage that uh, I really wanted to come back here. Okay. I would love to learn a little bit more about what a chief of ICE operations does. Mm-hmm. So my, my Twilight Tour, the last tour that you have before you are required to retire, uh, was, <clears throat> is called your Twilight Tour. And my Twilight Tour was as the uh, ice boss for the commandant at that time was Jim Gracie. And so I had, uh, I was the fleet manager for all of the Coast Guard icebreakers. And we had then, at that time, we had uh, six, seven of them, seven large ones, seven polar icebreakers, plus a number of smaller ones in a, all over the country and that where there is ice. I was the program manager for the for everything that the Coast Guard did, any place that there was ice anywhere in the world. And I am the sea daddy for the Coast Guard Cutter Healy. Hmm. Would you like to know what a sea daddy yeah, is? Yes, a great title. <laughs> so uh, at the uh, about halfway through my tour, it uh, became clear that we were going to be allowed by the Office of Management and Budget and by the appropriations process to design and build a a new icebreaker. So we uh, started the design work for the ship that we now know as Healy, and Healy is homeported here. So uh, my staff uh, put together some basic parameters, and I approved them. And the basic parameters were translated into cut steel and to a ship that was eventually commissioned. And now she is the Coast Guard Cutter Healy. And she is home ported here in Seattle. And she's turned out to be, uh, to fulfill all of the hopes and expectations that we thought 
for her when she was first being designed. So I'm responsible for that, and uh, I'm responsible for the basic design parameters that have made her. I'm going to now, this is the egocentric part, <laughs> I'm now going to uh, admit that uh, my staff and I came up with these parameters, and she has been everything that we wanted for her. So but, I'm so yeah. I'm her so I am her sea daddy, and that was that was the way that I ended my uh, active duty service in the Coast Guard. So, but that must have been a great legacy to leave. And and then I have another legacy, which we'll get to when we move me to the University of Cambridge in England. Ooh, okay. But we've missed one part of my active duty career, which uh, uh, shaped me in ways that I did not fully understand at the time. I only did one XO, one second in command tour in all of my seagoing time. Mm. I was uh, XO in a Coast Guard cutter that was assigned to the 7th Fleet in Vietnam. And so I was... uh, the second in command of the ship that was on the gun line for almost a year. And uh, we served in all four of the core areas. Uh, All the Vietnam people who might listen to this know about how Vietnam, South Vietnam was divided up into four core areas, and we served in all four core areas. And most of the time the ship was underway, we were replenished from other ships underway and uh, very seldom touched in any ports. So this uh, shaped me not so much in my seamanlike skills because by the time I became XO in this ship, I'd already had two commands at sea. But uh, it uh, shaped me in the uh, whole way of the intensity of operations and constantly being underway and uh, and the the differences in the country as to why we were there and what we were doing there. And so uh, I include all of this is in my own broadcast that I do here on the voice of Bashan 101.9. And a lot of the people who listen to me on that program are people who also served. Mm -hmm. So I, I like to bring that in because it was a big part of my life, even though it was a relatively short period of time. And then when we came back, I fleeted up, which means I moved up one one uh, position. I fleeted up, and I became the captain of that ship. Okay. That same, same ship? Same ship that I had been with for almost two years, including a year in Vietnam. So, yeah. so we put that in there, and we skirted around something else that you wanted to ask me. Yes. How did you find yourself in England. Okay. When I was the captain of the icebreaker, I had carried a number of scientists from the Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge. So I decided that I wanted to go. I'd been invited, and I decided that I wanted to go and do a, a master's degree this is a good point to put in here that no matter how old you are chronologically, you should never stop learning. You should never stop experiencing all of the things that there are to experience in this great world in which we live. I had been retired for 10 years, almost Mm. 10 years. And uh, Mary and I had, by this time I had married again. And Mary and I had uh, gone to Europe specifically to take her to Ireland so that she could find her beginnings, where her family came from. Mm -hmm. They came from County Wexford down in the south. And so we went to Ireland, and then I said, let's go on up to, uh, let's go up to Cambridge and just take a look at Scott Polar Research Research Institute. So we got on the train at King's Cross and went up to Cambridge, and it was rainy and it was Mm -hmm. wet. So we went over to the institute, and it was between terms, and there were no students there, but uh, the admin staff was still working away, beavering away, and the uh, gal came out, and she handed me the uh, light blue graduate school admissions packet, 
And she said, Captain, you really should come here and do the degree. And I said, well, I'm a little bit advanced chronologically to do that. <laughs> and she said, that doesn't matter. We've got people here that are, uh, she was very kind about it. She didn't say we didn't, that we have people here who are as old as you, but she said uh, people here of relatively uh, advanced years and so I took the packet, and on the train going back from Cambridge to back to King's Cross, uh, I looked at it, and I said, I can do this. And as I thought about all of this, um, Mary had said, well, I can tell that you really think you'd like to go back there and do that. And I said, yes, I really would. And she said, well, whatever you decide, I'm, I'm ready to do it with you. So I woke up in the middle of the night one night, and I said, Mary R., we're, we're going to go. And so I applied. I learned later that my application was the subject of considerable amount of discussion by the acceptance board because uh, some of the people there said, uh, well, this is an old sea captain. He's accustomed to doing things his way all the time. And they were right about that. And uh, he may not fit into the Cambridge way. I didn't know about this discussion until after I'd been there for some time. And so, uh, but I was eventually accepted. And uh, Mary and I moved to Cambridge. And what we thought was going to be just for a year to finish the master's program turned out to be three because at the end uh, after I'd been admitted to my degree, uh, my director uh, asked me if I would stay and manage the construction of the Shackleton Memorial Library. In. And the Institute had gotten the funding to build a library and memorial to uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton in particular, but also to his son, Lord Edward. So the, my director, John, said, uh, Captain Joe, we'd like you to stay and to manage the construction of the library. And I said, well, John, I'm, uh, although I was educated as an engineer, I've never practiced it. I can read blueprints, and I am not a civil engineer. And he said, well, that's not what I want. I want somebody who can get the academics to work together should you accept the task. We're going to build the library around all of the activities that the Institute still carry. It's going to carry on all of its activities, all its research work, all the teaching. He said, we, I want you to do this because I think you can, you can lead these people to get the job done. Mm. So I said, all right, I have two conditions. The first condition is that I have full authority to make all of the decisions that come up inevitably in any major construction project. In other words, nobody gets to run around me and comes to you and appeals any of my decisions. And he said, done. And I said, the other thing is that I want complete control over all of the finances, including the contingency account. And he said, done. Mm -hmm. So that's the way we did it. And uh, the management of uh, senior academics, especially in an 800-year-old university like Cambridge turned out to be uh, a challenge, but not one that could not be uh, managed. It was a wonderful project, and that is my second legacy to the polar world, is the Shackleton Memorial Library. Wow. So if you go to Cambridge today, and you go to the Scott Polar Research Institute in Lensfield Road, it's built on top of a piece of ground where the Romans occupied because all of almost all of Cambridge was part of a Roman city. And uh, you go there and go into the reception and tell them that you know Captain Joe and you'd like to see the Wubold Room. That was my gift, was uh, the uh, Wubold Room. And the nice thing about it is that it is also where all of the graduate students have their desks because part of the mission of the Institute is teaching uh, young people who are going to be the next generations of those who follow behind Scott and Shackleton, and even me, because I have a glacier named for me in Antarctica. 
and uh, all of the other wonderful people, much more accomplished than I, and much more experienced than I, who uh, have brought the Antarctic continent in particular, but polar regions in general, uh, into being part of the legacy of all mankind. Yeah, I'd love to see that in person one day. That's really cool. And so you eventually make your way back to the U.S., Mm -hmm. When does Vashon Island come back into the picture? When we went to the UK, we sold our house in Issaquah because they were busy paving over that whole beautiful valley and we didn't want to go back there. So we were looking around for a place we wanted to come back to the Pacific Northwest. We both like it here a lot. Um, Our children and grandchildren are spread out all over the place, but this was a good central point. I had done a little bit of probing around the edges of the real estate market and had been in touch with uh, a gentleman by the name of John Thompson who worked for the uh, John L. Scott Agency here on the island. And so we made one reconnaissance tour before we left the, uh, Cambridge. On, and we came out here and we looked around and it was beginning to be clear to me that if you could live on an island that you could only get to by ferry, that would be a perfect place for an old sailor and his lady to live out three years. <laughs> but it was when we finally came back and we did some serious looking around and we found just the right house for us on the water. And I had completely forgotten about uh, that Point Robinson Light is on this island when we first moved here. So I went to a couple of meetings about uh, things that were going on on the island, and one of them had to do with, uh, at that time, the Vashon Park District had just taken on a lease with the Coast Guard to not operate the lighthouse. The Coast Guard then and now still takes care of the part of it that makes it a working lighthouse. But to all the rest of the property was part of this lease, and there was a group group forming up that was trying to figure out how best to do this. Because one of the conditions of the lease was that the park district was responsible for maintaining all the property out there except the actual light. So I got involved with that particular group and I went to one of their meetings and Captain John Burke was there and and uh, he asked me publicly if I would take on the leadership of this particular group. And and I was ready to take command of something by that time. So I said I would. And so off and on over the 20 years that I've lived on the island, I've been either involved or head of the, of the keepers of Point Robinson. And that's where I remember that I first met you because you had your wedding out there. Yes, I did. I got married right by Point Robinson. I mean, if you don't live on Vashon, it's hard to express just how iconic the lighthouse is. But I'd say if you do a Google image search about Vashon, (laughs) the majority or the most commonly uh, photographed landmark here on Vashon would be the lighthouse for sure. And it is, and uh, it is compared to many lighthouses, uh, it is in good shape. It is not up to my standards if it were a fully operational Coast Guard station, but it is um, it gives everybody a flavor of what it was like. And, of course, we use the houses that, that were occupied by the keeper and his family. And the assistant keeper and his family, we keep those, we maintain those, and we rent those out as vacation rentals, and that helps us with the cash flow that we need to carry out the maintenance that has to be done out there. Well, one of the events, or one of the kinds of events that we do are weddings, and mm-hmm. you had your wedding out there. Yeah, it was beautiful, made, from, made for some amazing photographs, and luckily it was a nice day. <laughs> and did we take photographs from the top of the tower? Yes, you sure showed up on a Saturday to help us out and... Let us up there. So thank you. We real everyone really appreciated it. It was everyone's highlight from the wedding. So we've had uh, things like that. We've had a number of memorial services for uh, people who, in particular, people who have worked out there. And 
over the last couple of years, I've lost three of my original keepers people, mm. and we've had the memorial services. Uh, my funeral will be out there. It's not planned for any time soon, Mm-mm. but we're going to have my funeral out there, and it will be a, a military funeral for uh, a senior officer. It's going to have uh, a lot of military theatrics to go with it, and uh, hopefully we'll make a, we'll make a big island um, celebration out of it. Yeah, I'm sure, but I hope it's a long time from now. <laughs> well, we've got a lot of things to do yet. Yes, for sure. And Captain Joe, you I think of you so, so tied to the lighthouse, but you have a lot of other interests here on uh, Vashon Island, including I wanted to touch upon your new show here on Voice of Vashon 101.9 FMLP uh, from the captain's chair, it's called. I've been able to listen to a couple episodes, and it's really interesting. Would you mind telling folks who haven't heard the show yet a little bit about what to expect? When I first started doing this, I had uh, 10 minutes with uh, Truman O'Brien on Morning Scramble on Tuesday morning with Truman and Molly, and I was consistently going over time because I can hardly introduce myself in 10 minutes. (laughs) And so... There uh, came a time about uh, back in, I think, in back in October when part of my Coast Guard listenership, and I have people that listen to the program all over the world, and when they can't listen to it directly or stream it directly, they listen from the archive. And so some of my Coast Guard people um, sent in a request for a program of my own, and they buttressed that with um, a significant financial donation to the voice of Vashon, which convinced them that maybe they could take a risk with me. So uh, anyway, uh, Jeff Hoyt, who is one of the managers here, uh, said, okay, we'll give Captain Joe a try. And I said, uh, okay, half an hour. And he said, 1230 on Tuesdays, every Mm -hmm. Tuesday. So I get to talk about anything that I want. And I only have friends that come on with me. I don't have guests. Maybe you'll come on with me sometime. Yeah. We'll we'll trade here. So um, I get to talk about anything I want. And in my first broadcast, I proclaimed my mission was that, first of all, I would not do any politics, not even island politics, although I get close to the edge sometimes because I'm so deeply embedded in this particular place. And I love it here. So I don't do politics, and my proclaimed mission is that uh, at the end of the half hour, everybody who stays with me for the entire half hour will feel just a little bit better about themselves and a little bit better about the world around us. So I talk about uh, things military, I talk about things Coast Guard, I talk about things nautical, and I talk about things that people send me, a lot of material. I get a lot of material from people who like what we're doing and want to be a part of it. And so they send me uh, articles about things they'd like me to comment on. My whole professional and, and working life has been in the service of something that is greater than each of us as an individual. And and I feel that I have until it's time for me to cross the bar, which is what sailors call the end, the great end, Mm -hmm. whatever that end is, it's crossing the bar. And so when it's time for me to cross the bar, I hope that I can say that um, maybe one or two people I've touched just a little bit. And so I always end my program by saying, reach out and touch fingertips with somebody close to you. And uh, if you've got people around you who need some kind of help and you're able to provide it, then that's what I want you to do. So as a result, we've had not only a lot of fun and have had some really great friends come and talk about some very interesting things, but I try to reach out to people that um, maybe not get any kind of exposure anyplace else. Mm. And it has uh, turned out to be a very satisfying thing for me. And since every so often somebody throws a little bit of money at 
101.9 Voice of Vashon on the magical Isle of Vashon that helps keep us afloat. Definitely. Well, I'm really excited to watch the evolution of, uh, or listen to the evolution of the show, rather. And uh, I love that mission of kind of compassion. And I love how you've seen a whole lot in your career and life and the fact that that's kind of your your mission is really powerful. Uh, and Captain Joe, we love to save time at the end of every episode to do a fun lightning round of questions okay. that are very Vashon focused. All right. Very are well. You, I'm, I'm ready. Are you game? Okay. I am. Of course I am. <laughs> Captain Joe's always ready. And so the first question is, uh, so the Seattle area is known for good beverages, whether it's coffee, tea, beer, wine. Do you have a favorite beverage here on Vashon? The uh, favorite beverage here on Vashon is um, no longer alcohol. I was an enthusiastic uh, participant in that activity during my active duty time, as many, many military people are. So I no longer do that. If I were, it would be um, Cliff's Beer. And uh, Cliff and Kara are friends from almost the beginning of my living here on the island. Kara and I worked together for a number of years on with uh, Vashon Community Care. And when Cliff started his, his own brewery, um, he uh, struck a responsive chord with all of my family. So, so even though I no longer drink it myself, I'm going to answer that question with uh, Cliff's beer. Endorse Cliff. Yes, that's a great one. And the next question is, if you're not at home or down at Point Robinson, where can people most often find you on the island? Like, do you have any favorite spots? Uh, usually, uh, well, I'm I'm more and more often here at the Voice of Vashon. Uh, I do my program live every Tuesday, and I do it unscripted and unrehearsed. So this is one of the uh, places uh, as you have quite correctly identified, uh, Point Robinson is another one. But I I live on a, a private road, and the people that live on that and share that road with me and that part of the island down in the south end in Tahlequah is, uh, I think, my favorite place. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's a lovely little community, and uh, I love the place in which I live. It was uh, helped uh, helped me to find it by a black cat. You want to know about the black cat? I love cats, sure. So when the time came, uh, I I hate house hunting. Mm. And at the end of the day, whichever house is the last one we look at, that's the one I want to buy, just to end it. <laughs> and Mary, on whom all blessings flow, would would say, well, when, no, that's not the right house. We're not going to buy that one. So... Uh, one day I was up in, uh, we were up at uh, John L. Scott, and uh, they had a whole display of all of the houses that they had on sale at that time up on the bulkhead. And I went over and looked at it, and there was one house there that, that we'd not been shown. And I said, why, why don't we take a look at this one? Oh, Captain Joe, you wouldn't be interested in that house. I said, why not? And he said, well, it's been on the market a couple of times, and we've had a couple of people put money down on it and then back out. And we just don't think that was one that you would be interested in. And I said, well, let's go take a look at it. So <clears throat> we uh, drove to this house down in the South end and it uh, looked pretty good to me. And it had a wonderful, wonderful view of the South sound. That's the part of the sound that I now manage, even unbeknownst to those being managed. And so while Mary and the owner were talking about the kitchen and things like that, this uh, black cat came up to me. And uh, so I said, all right, let's go down to the beach because this is, house is one of the few in that part of the island that has uh, direct beach access right on the property. So I said, come on, black cat, let's go down to the beach and take a look. So we went down and we were sitting on the rocks. It has a riprap bulkhead that on the property 
And I was sitting on one of the rocks, and Black Cat came up, got up in my lap, and he said, you know, Captain Joe, this is the house for you. And so I said, well, Black Cat, let's just go right back up to the top of the hill and tell the women the good news. And he said, Black Cat said, well, Captain, I walked down, but you have to carry me back up. He said, I don't go, I don't walk back up, so you have to carry me up. So I scooped up Black Cat, and we hiked up. It's about a 400-foot climb from the water up to the house level. And I walked in, and I said, uh, well, Black Cat and I have decided that this is the house for us. Mary didn't think that a decision made on the basis of a Black Cat's advice was really the way we ought to go. But further discussions and negotiations turned out that it was indeed the right house for us. And that's where we live today, and we've lived there for 20 years. And it's just a perfect, perfect place. Beautiful. And did you ever see Black Cat again once you moved in? No, and I'm often asked, did Black Cat go with the house? And no, <laughs> the Black Cat did not go with the house, but we were living there for two weeks, and then this cat showed up at our door on the deck and applied for residence. <laughs> so we uh, we took the cat in, and uh, Barbara Gustafson, who, uh, not Gustafson, but uh, Barbara Drinkwater, who was at that time... Uh, not only still alive, but uh, one of the ones much loved people that we lost in this last year. And so I called Barbara up and I said, Barbara, I've got this cat. And uh, he says that he wants to move in with us, but we don't want a cat. And she said, well, Captain Joe, here's the way we work that. If you agree to foster that cat, I will look around for someone to take it on on a permanent basis. Barbara lied. She never looked. She never looked for anybody. And so we, of course, did exactly what she knew what we were going to do, and we ended up keeping that cat. <laughs> what we didn't know was that he had a buddy out in the bush, and two weeks later he called his buddy up and said, "Come on in. I found this really great place to live. These people are the house is warm, the house is dry. They feed me." twice a day, come on in. (laughs) And it turns out that the two of them had traveled together, living rough for quite a while, and just waiting for somebody compatible to move into that house. And so we ended up with two cats. (laughs) Oh, that's fun. And so moving on. Yes, moving on. (laughs) A couple more questions. Uh, The next one is, do you have any pet peeves about island living? Any uh, pet peeves about island living? One of them is that the diversity that we have here on the island in all characteristics is a wonderful part of island life. But there is uh, sometimes a, uh, and this is a really serious one, I, I know that the question is intended to get something out that we can smile over, but this one's kind of serious to me. Uh, There is uh, a lot less um, cross-understanding of uh, some of these different diversities, and I just don't understand that. I have uh, friends here on the island who are the most unlikely friends that you would think somebody like me would have with uh, what my my reasonably conservative, slightly to the right of center ways of thinking about life and liberty. And I would uh, uh, I would wish that there would be more um, acceptance of all of those diversities. And I would have thought that this would be a place where that would be the case. But sometimes there are divisions here on the island which are not the way that I think of as the Vashon way. It's crazy how... Vashon can't even escape what the rest of the country is dealing with. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. That's right. Okay, so move, move along to one yes. that I can give you a... A fun one? Yes. Okay. The next one is, do you have a favorite Vashon Island tradition? I think that the, that the tradition of uh, going to Point Robinson when we have orca sightings. Oh, yeah. So uh, last uh, weekend my, or the weekend before that, my daughter uh, had her birthday and she had some friends and she rented 
Headquarters A out at Point Robinson. And during the weekend, we had one complete pod down here, and uh, they put on a full complete pod performance. And so uh, the park got filled up very quickly with people who come to see them. And I just like the idea that uh, all of the people who want to watch them come down to Point Robinson because not only do they come down just for that, but over the years we have worked really hard there to make it a place where island people can come, island people in particular, but uh, a lot of off-island people come as well. We, we do, for example, we do the low tide celebration, and this year it will be in June. And um, more than half of the people that come to that come from off-island. Mm. But that's just a great island tradition, which we started 15 years ago. Uh, we do it every year, and I lead that group again starting, uh, we start our planning for that this coming Monday, a week from today. So so the the island tradition of the using Point Robinson for all of the things that we use it for isn't really important to me, but then there are specific things that go with that, and one of them is that when orcas are sighted and Orca Annie puts out the word that they are here, then all kinds of people come down to yeah. Point Robinson to watch them. Yep, that's it's very magical. And Point Robinson's a great place to make yeah. some memories. Yes. So. Well, the very last question is, where can people find you to learn more about you? I'm guessing the radio show is one place. Listen one to the place. radio. Yep. Uh, I am in the Century Tell telephone book. I still have mm. a hardwired telephone. <laughs> uh, I will never give it up. Uh, I use a cellular telephone reluctantly <laughs> and not very gracefully. And I have one only because a friend with whom I do a lot of good things, hopefully good things for the island, uh, was trying to keep up with all of my activities and in particular to try to set up some appointments so that we could do some things together. And I did not at that time have a cellular telephone and I had no intention of ever getting one or ever learning how they work. So he made me a gift of one. But I believe in the SentryTel hardwired telephone. I have one today. And every time we have a power failure, I can still communicate because when the power lines come down, for some reason, the telephone lines don't. <laughs> and I can always get on the outside, even if the much loathed cellular telephone batteries have run out. Yeah. So I'm in the phone book. I am there under Wubold, which you pronounced accurately. We did have a little training yes. program on that. <laughs> Uh, I'm in the phone book and that's where you can find me. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in today, Captain Joe. It's been a real treat. Well, the nice thing about it, Grace, is that you and I first met on such a happy occasion and that was your wedding at Point Robinson. Yes. Well, thank you. I'll never forget that day for sure. Well, I hope not. <laughs> for multiple reasons. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Again, this is Inspired Island on Voice of Vashon, KVSH 101.9 FM LP. Until next time, stay inspired.